Welcome to Saturday evening Torah class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 42, Leviticus chapter 27, the end of our study of Leviticus. Well, tonight we're going to study the last chapter in the book of Leviticus and bring it to a close. And we might run just a, a little bit over tonight, but, but not much to speak of. Now, I want to tell you that I'm going to repeat a little bit of last week's lesson because the matter plays such a pivotal, important role in the life of a believer. And that's the subject of giving. Okay. Now, it's, I think it's kind of interesting that this is how Leviticus ends up. Right? Talking about this subject. You know that this is something that, that I don't bring up very often in here. Right? And part of the reason is, is that you all are faithful. You've been very faithful and I appreciate that. Um, at the same time, it's something that must must be ongoing in our lives. And we have choices to make. And from a biblical perspective, the operation of God's house of worship, what at this point in Israel's history was this wilderness tabernacle, later it would be the temple, was going to be funded from a whole variety of sources. And chapter 27 is going to deal with a whole range of categories of how... God's priestly institutions were going to be funded. And what we find as we're going to get into this chapter tonight is that in general, the goal was to actually give money. All right? And this was so the priests could go out and get what they needed for the sanctuary and for their families. So we're going to see this interesting schedule in here of, of values drawn up in which various pledges of land and animals and food could all be exchanged for an equal amount of silver. And the idea was that vows, which were very popular in the, in the Bible era, um, that that person could go in and make a vow and vow to donate something like an animal, and then turn around and buy it back for money. So it gives us this understanding of this transition within Leviticus from being out in the wilderness, which is where people pretty much just had animals and food to give, to a time to where they were going to be more settled. All right? They'd be transitioning to a different circumstance, so now, basically, it was going to be money they were giving, silver. Now, let me be clear. Where we worship, whether it's synagogue, church, it's supposed to be funded in the same way and with the same spirit. Now, churches and synagogues tend to lump all giving into a single kind of category. They'll either call it tithes or offerings or something like that. But Leviticus breaks this thing down. Right, into detailed categories. And 
what we today call tithing is just one of them. One of the many ways to give. And the other thing I want you to remember, and we brought this up last week, is that the subject of tithing per se really isn't discussed much in the New Testament. It's just lightly alluded to. Um, The word tithe can be found about a half dozen times in the New Testament, and that's it. But the thing that we have to understand is is just because it's not discussed much in the New Testament doesn't mean that believers now aren't supposed to support their congregational institutions. As a matter of fact, I don't know of too many churches or synagogues that would survive if its folks didn't do that. Now, I'm not going to spend long at this, but I just want to throw out a few things for you to think about. And the bottom line is, tithing and giving to support the institution was an assumed thing in the New Testament. It didn't need to be discussed. Everybody understood what they were supposed to do. And I mentioned last week, too, that there is this tendency within the church to say, well, if Jesus didn't directly say the words, I have no obligation. Well, I got news for you. Those few pages of the gospel did not record everything Jesus said in his life. And it was assumed that people would understand that they were to go to what he said to go to. And all of his apostles said to go to. He said, go to the scriptures if you want to learn. What was the scriptures in his day? The Old Testament. There wasn't anything else. There wouldn't be a New Testament for at least a couple of centuries after Christ died, after all the apostles were dead. So, any kind of idea that we've had that if Jesus didn't repeat it, we don't have to do it, just doesn't follow because I got news for you, our Christian life would be a whole lot less than it even is now if we went on that assumption. Now, Certainly we're given the thought in Luke that justice and love, love of God, should be the measure of our giving. That's going to be the measure of the tithe. But there's other Gospels that make it clear that that's not the only law that we're supposed to follow. That in fact, justice and mercy and faithfulness are also laws. They're laws of God. And we're to match our giving with that. We're supposed to consider it in the same light. It's every bit as important and it has to be based on the love of God. Um, Over the years, a lot changed in the Bible, and, and, and sometimes this is hard for us to grasp, that the Bible was written over a period of 14 centuries. So how things were and how giving could even be accomplished back in the days of Moses versus how it could be done in the time of Jesus was totally different. Look how we are today. Imagine what 
if you can, what life was like not long after they landed on Plymouth Rock. Right? How they got along, how they lived, how they gave is totally different because the society is different than we do today. Right? So we have to take this all into account and reapply the law to how we give. And more or less showing up with baskets of fruit and string beans right? and so on is probably not going to help your institution too terribly much. All right? it, 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 it can serve a good purpose. All right? So that's the reason that even er- this early in the, um, in the Torah, we actually find the instructions, and we're going to see them here in, Deuteron- uh, in uh, Leviticus 27, to start switching to money. Because that's going to be a much easier means to give. With that said, let's move on now to Leviticus 27. And let's read the whole chapter together. Adonai said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel if someone makes a clearly defined vow to Adonai to give him an amount equal to the value of a human being, the value you are to assign to a man between the ages of 20 and 60 is to be 50 shekels of silver, with the sanctuary shekel being the standard. If it's a woman, 30 shekels. I usually get boos and hisses about now. <laughs> if it's a child, 5 to 20 years old, assign a value of 20 shekels for a boy and 10 for a girl. If a baby one month to five years of age, five shekels for a boy, three for a girl. If a person past 60, 15 shekels for a man, 10 for a woman. Yeah, boo. If the person is too poor to be evaluated, set him before the priest who will assign him a value in keeping with the means of the person who made the vow. Now, if the vow is for the value of an animal of the kind used when people bring an offering to Adonai, all that a person gives of such animals to Adonai will be holy. He's not to exchange or replace it by substituting a good animal for a bad one or vice versa. If he does make a substitution, both the original animal and the one replacing it will be holy. If the animal's unclean, such as may not be used in an offering to Adonai, he must set it before the priest, and the priest is to set a value on it in relation to its good and bad points. And the value set by the priest will stand. But if the person making the vow wishes to redeem that animal, he must add one-fifth to the evaluation. When a person consecrates his house to be holy for Adonai, the priest is to set a value on it in relation to its good and bad points. The value set by the priest will stand. If the consecrator wishes to redeem his house, he must add one-fifth to the value you have set on it, and it will revert to him. If a person consecrates to Adonai part of a field belonging to his tribe's possession, you are to value it according to its production, with five bushels of barley being valued at fifty shekels of silver. And if he consecrates his field during the year of Jubilee, this valuation will stand. But if he consecrates his field after the Jubilee, then the priest is to calculate the price according to the years remaining until the next Jubilee with a corresponding reduction from your valuation. If the one consecrating the field wishes to redeem it, 
He must add one-fifth to your evaluation, and the field will be set aside to revert to him. If the seller does not wish to redeem the field, or if um, the treasurer for the priest has already sold the field to someone else, it can no longer be redeemed. But when the purchaser has to vacate the field in the Jubilee, it will become holy to Adonai. Like a field unconditionally consecrated, it will belong to the priests. And if he consecrates to Adonai a field which he has bought, a field which is not part of his tribe's possession, then the priest is to calculate its value according to the years remaining until the year of Jubilee, and the man will on that same day pay this amount since it is holy to Adonai. In the year of Jubilee, the field will revert to the person from whom it was bought, that is, to the person whose tribal possession it belongs. All of your valuations are to be according to the sanctuary shekel. 20 geras to the shekel. However, the firstborn among animals, since it's already born as a firstborn for Adonai, nobody can consecrate. Neither ox nor sheep, since it belongs to Adonai already. But if it is an unclean animal, he may redeem it at the price at which you value it and add a fifth. Or if he does not redeem it, it's to be sold at the price at which you value it. However, nothing consecrated unconditionally which a person may consecrate to Adonai out of all he owns, person, animal, or field he possesses, is to be sold or redeemed, because everything consecrated unconditionally is especially holy to Adonai. No person who's been sentenced to die, and thus unconditionally consecrated, can be redeemed. He must be put to death. All the tenth given from the land, whether from planted seed or fruit from trees, belongs to Adonai. It's holy to Adonai. The owner is not to inquire whether the animal is good or bad, and he cannot exchange it. If he does exchange it, both it and the one he substituted for it will be holy. It cannot be redeemed. These are the commands which Adonai gave to Moses for the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. Well, this narrative begins by talking about vows to the Lord. And, and the remainder of this chapter continues to discuss vows and then how to deal with whatever it was that was vowed, whatever it was that was devoted as part of a vow. Now, this can all sound a bit hard to untangle, right? but what it really amounts to is this. Men have historically made rash promises to God. When we feel threatened or in danger, or man, we really want something. Okay. As my father, who was a World War II veteran, used to say, there's no atheists in foxholes. Right. So people who've never even considered God are being obedient to his commandments when they're in mortal danger or sometimes just in serious difficulty, suddenly find religion. And they start making vows promises to the Lord if he'll get them out of whatever hopeless situation they might find themselves in. You know, some years ago, I watched a hilarious movie. It was called The End. Right? And it starred Dom DeLuise and Burt Reynolds. Now, there's a pair for you. And it all revolved around this mental facility and a couple of wacky guys who took turns living there. Now, towards the end of the film, 
Burt Reynolds decides he can't stand it anymore and he's going to kill himself. And he's going to do this by wading out into the ocean surf and then swimming out to sea until he's beyond the point of no return. Now he won't be able to save himself and he'll drown. Well, the camera follows him right, as he walks into these salty waters and he fights through the oncoming waves until he reaches the calmer side. And at that point, he starts swimming towards the horizon. All the time, he's talking to himself about all of his troubles and why he's got to do this and it's going to be so good when it's all over. And as luck would have it, by the time he's tiring and he can't swim another stroke, which, of course, was his goal in the first place, he suddenly realizes, you know, that maybe his problems aren't all that bad after all. Maybe I don't want to die. So he turns back and he looks to the distant shore and he panics because he knows he's never going to make it. And the first thing he does... It's kind of a knee-jerk reaction as he looks up and he shouts to heaven, Lord, I'll give you everything I have, everything, if you'll just get me safely back to the beach. And as he starts swimming towards the beach, he gets the slightest glimmer of hope that he just might make it. So he stops to take a breath and he shouts up to heaven, Lord... I'll give you 90% of everything I have. Just let me live. And a quick burst of energy now propels him and he starts getting closer and closer to safety. Now, he's got growing confidence. We're past the 50-50 point here and he yells, Lord, Lord, I'll split it with you. I'll split everything I have with you. Just get me back to the shore. Well, the swimming and the bargaining continues until he finally reaches land and he's exhausted but alive and he staggers out of the water and falls onto the beach. He rolls over on his back and he looks up to heaven and he says, oh, thanks God. If there's ever anything you need, just let me know. <laughs> All too true, isn't it? Okay. This is about as good an illustration as I can think of to explain what's going on here in Leviticus 27. Okay. The Hebrews made vows to God all the time, especially when they were worried or scared. It was just part of their culture. And at other times, they did it when they were in a particularly pious mood. You know, like after we've all just sung a real emotional song. Okay. So they might promise God something kind of impulsive. And very often these vows weren't very well thought out. And pretty soon they regretted making them. And in those days, vows were not only public, they were made known to the priests. And these vows had accompanying rituals, so everybody knew about it. So these folks, the question is, I guess, were they stuck with these rashly made vows? <laughs> you bet they were. Okay. However, you could legally redeem, you could buy back, your vow for a price if that vow involved giving the Lord property of some kind that had value. Now, notice that a vow always includes giving God something of value. 
Okay, promising to be obedient henceforth is just fine as long as it included a gift, gift of proper worth to go along with the promise. Okay. Now, typically, if the vow involved an item with a value that could be reasonably set on it, then the redemption price was 120% of that item's market value. And in verse 1, we find that the value, that the item of value as part of the vow, in this case, interestingly, was a human being. Now, don't get the idea that a man has offered a slave he owns. Rather, this is a case where a person has offered him or herself to God. And what's actually being offered, of course, is that person's service to the sanctuary, to the temple. Now, in reality, giving service to the temple was only rarely even possible. This was because God had ordained that not only, um, rather that only Levites and priests could serve at the temple. Only Levites and priests. Ordinary Jews couldn't serve at the temple. That's not to say that an ordinary Jew who made such a vow couldn't work for a priest, or maybe even outside of the temple. But that's not generally what happened, and that wasn't what was being contemplated. Were there other means of entering into God's service, but not being attached to the temple? Yes, we get examples like that in the Bible of Samson and Samuel, both being vowed to service to God in the form of a Nazarite vow. Yet the form of their service did not involve temple service but rather service in different ways. In these cases, as, as a judge and as a prophet, right? by being dedicated to God. Now, since in most cases, this person who vowed himself into sanctuary service was not ever going to be able to carry it out because he was restricted by regulation from doing it, there was nothing left for him to do but to redeem the vow. And verses 3 through 8 explain how the priest was to arrive at a proper evaluation of the amount of money for that person who took the vow that he had to come up with in order to redeem himself. In a nutshell, men from 20 to 60 years of age had to pay 50 shekels, women of the same age, 30. Boy children from 5 to 20 years old had to pay 20, girls of the same age, 10. Infant and toddlers from a month to 5 years, Five shekels for a boy, three for a girl. An elderly person, over 60 years of age, 15 shekels for a male, 10 for a female. Now, this may not sound like a lot of money, but it was actually quite substantial. Okay. In this era, the wages for one month's work was about one shekel. Okay. So, what cost a mature male better than four full years of wages to redeem himself from a vow of service to God. Think of one shekel as one month and you get the idea. This was a costly thing to do to make a rash vow to God. Rabbis call 
this chart of values set down in Leviticus, the principle of equivalence. Well, actually, we've seen this concept of equivalence before. We've seen it in the presentation of certain kinds of offerings to atone for certain kinds of sins. We've seen where a person must present in silver shekels 120% of the value of a ram as a guilt offering, for instance. Now, it might upset some of you ladies to see that your equivalent in money is generally from half to two-thirds that of a male in these verses. On the other hand, what you can take from this is that women were allowed to make vows to God on their own. Okay? And, and, and the children, the children were pledged, boys and girls, for service to God by their parents. So we must never go so far as to think that Hebrew society or the laws of Torah made women or girl children worthless, because it certainly didn't. But this was a very male-dominated society. All right? With, but, but women had rights and value and men had duties towards them. Further, when it came to a woman's relationship with God, she could have one on a personal basis as expressed by her ability here to make a personal vow. Well, starting in verse 9, we move from redeeming pledged people to redeeming pledged animals. And the idea was that a person could pledge an animal as part of his or her vow offering and then turn around and redeem that animal. And the cost to do it, though, was 120% of that animal's fair value. In other words, a 20% surcharge was added. And a logical question to ask would be, so who sets the value? And the answer was the priesthood. Now, in many ways, of course, this represents tremendous power being vested in the priesthood. After all, Whatever the priest decided was the proper value for an animal surely must have carried over into the marketplace at large. There would not have been one value for an animal offered up and another for the same animal simply bought and sold in an everyday transaction. So the priests were actually administers of justice and they had a hand in setting the market price for livestock along with all their other temple duties. Well, the idea behind verse 9, where it says that any animal brought as an offering to the Lord may not be redeemed, simply brings us back to a principle we learned several months ago, and it's this principle of holy property. And I cannot tell you, if you've been following with us uh, along in in, in, um, Joshua, It should be becoming very clear, this principle of holy property in the Bible and how much that needs to mean to us. When it says here that this animal is holy, that's what it means. It's become God's holy property. So the reason this animal can't even be redeemed is because it's already been transferred to God. It's his now. It's too late. Once Once it belongs to God, there's no getting it back. A person who would attempt to do so would be violating God's holy property and the penalty is death for for attempting this. Further, a person who designates an animal for sacrifice as part of a vow can't later substitute it with another animal. Not even an animal of greater value. 
Another part of the principle of holy property is that at some point in the process of the owner determining which of his animals he's going to offer, spiritually speaking, it becomes a done deal. And this can be before he even brings that animal to the temple. In other words, the choice of the sacrificial animal to be given can simply be a mental decision upon which no actions have even been taken. But at that point of decision, God deems that animal's his. And so it's holy property. Now, if a person should try and make a substitution, the priest is instructed to keep both animals. Okay. Why? Because now both of them have been devoted to God as holy property. Now, the first animal discussed, since it was suitable for an altar sacrifice, it was by definition a ritually clean animal. And verse 11 talks about a ritually unclean animal being used for a vow offering, and we see that this is perfectly acceptable. Automatically, though, it means that this animal must be exchanged for money since the unclean animal can't be used for a sacrifice, nor can the priest eat it. And as a standard, 20% surcharge was added to redeem it. And then verse 14 shifts from redeeming human and animal life to inanimate objects. And the word used now to, up to now to designate these humans and animals as vow offerings suddenly changes. The term changes to consecrations. In other words, these things are, are set apart for God, not necessarily as part of a vow, but more as just a free will offering. Thus, if someone consecrates his house, but he wants to get it back, it costs him 120% of that house's, that house's market value. Next is what happens if someone consecrates land. The value of the land is determined by what the potential crop value that it might produce is. Now, of course, we saw this earlier in chapter 25 as we dealt with the Jubilee, how all that works. Further, even though it is the sanctuary operated by priests that gets the benefit of the land, the laws of Jubilee still apply. So the price for redemption of the land by its owner is based on the number of years worth of crops that it's going to produce before the next Jubilee year. And upon the year of Jubilee, the landowner gets his land back. Then we get this interesting footnote in verse 25. That the standard for paying the redemption money is something called the sanctuary shekel. And what this means is twofold. First of all, it says that the content of the shekel coin is to be silver. And second, that the precise weight shall be something called 20 geras. Now, the situation was this. In this era, anybody could mint their own coins. And they could determine the coin's content and weight and thus its value. The first coins used for money were basically just blobs of silver that when the metal was still hot and pliable had a signet ring pushed down upon it that would identify the coin's owner. 
Okay? Now, eventually, most kings and potentates made their own coins for use in their own kingdoms. But unlike today, where the metal content of the coin, at least in America, has little or nothing to do with the, its value, ancient coins were simply convenient, predetermined amounts of gold and silver. So a one-shekel coin theoretically contained one shekel's worth of silver. Ten shekel to a coin, ten shekels worth of silver or gold, and so on. So here in Leviticus 27, it's set down that a shekel is to consist of 20 geras, a measurement of weight, of silver. Somebody else could have determined that their shekel coin was only to be, let's say, 15 geras, or 18, or 10, or whatever they wanted it to be. So someone would come to the tabernacle to pay their redemption price with a handful of coins or silver nuggets. A priest would weigh it, and then based on a standard of 20 grains of silver, or geras of silver, equaling a shekel, the Israelite would then pay the proper number of shekels to redeem whatever it was he was redeeming. Now, many years later, by the way, during the first temple period, Solomon's temple, the priests actually minted temple coins. By the late second temple period, in Yeshua's day, when the entire priest and temple institution had become thoroughly corrupt, the only way somebody could pay for a redemption or to purchase a sacrificial animal was with coins minted by the temple. So Jews would come from all over the Roman Empire with perfectly valid Roman coins from wherever they were from, but then they would be forced into exchanging those at the temple for temple-minted coins. The money changers that Yeshua got so angry with were those who bought foreign coins from Jewish pilgrims for a low price and exchanged them for temple coins at a higher price than their value. Okay. Of course, a hefty built-in commission was also charged. And the high priest was complicit in this nasty business. All right, so that he could make profit for himself as well. Well, the next type of offering discussed is called firstlings. That is, in the sense of first fruits or the firstborn of things. And the rule is that since all first fruits or all firstborns, animals or people, belong by default to the Lord, they can't be consecrated to Him. In other words, nobody can give to the Lord as a consecrated item something that's already been consecrated to Him. You can't give something that already belongs to God like it's an additional offering. That said, this applies only to clean things, things that have been declared ritually clean, suitable for sacrifice. Unclean things can indeed be consecrated to the Lord, but they must be redeemed, and then that money given in its place. As an example, a person can consecrate an unclean animal. Let's say a camel. But that person is obligated to redeem it. Or the priest sells the animal to another person for, for money, but the price they must charge for that animal is 20% above its usual market value. 
Now, I suppose a reasonable question right now ought to be, why would a person go through such a strange process as to give an animal, knowing he'd have to turn around and redeem it, for a price higher than its value? Well, remember, we're dealing with an ancient culture full of customs and traditions. Okay? And that this was a farming and herding-based society. It might be that that person gives the animal because he currently has no silver money to give. It is agreed that the animal will be held for a time, like surety, until that person can come up with the money to redeem it. Now, verse 28 describes another kind of setting apart, uh, rather, of setting apart an item for God. Right? Different Bibles will use different words for this kind of giving. Some will say devote. Others will say proscribe. Our complete Jewish Bible says consecrated unconditionally. I don't have a problem with any of those words. What this is getting at is that this particular type of setting apart an item for God, there can't be any redemption. It's a permanent consecration. And the most important thing for us to, real, to recognize is not this somewhat arbitrary and loose choice of a word or a term for each kind of offering, like a vow or a consecration or a devotion or so on. What's important to see is that there's a whole number of kinds or classes of giving things to God or setting things apart for God. And each of them have their own rules and regulations in the law. The idea that we should give mechanically 10% of our income and we're off the hook, right? or that we see somebody in need, but we look the other way simply because we've already given, right? is unknown in the Bible. It doesn't exist, that kind of thinking. The tithe only represents a certain kind of giving, not the sum total of all giving. Now, notice this seemingly out-of-place thought that we see in verse 29 that speaks of no human who has been devoted or set apart can be ransomed. Instead, he has to be put to death. Now, what's going on here is that this is just a Hebrew way of saying that no one who's been given the death penalty for some capital crime can be redeemed for money. He must die. It's kind of interesting the way this whole thing comes full circle. We're going along speaking about devoting or setting aside things for God. Gifts, offerings, good things, positive things. Then the scripture just throws someone who's committed a capital crime, a bad thing, into that same category. Now, what's being demonstrated here is that there is a connection between a person violating a very serious, committing a very serious offense of the law of God and thus getting the death penalty and the setting aside of things for God. Now, please follow this because we're going to see how God and the Hebrew legal system in general views justice. We saw back in chapter 26 that when God makes a law, he makes a regulation, he also sets down a blessing 
for those who are obedient to it and a curse for those who are disobedient to it. And the curse for the violation of some of God's laws is physical death. This is not by human determination. This is not a group of legislators sitting down and determining from their own personal sense of morality who should live and who should die. Okay? This is God's determination. Just as he gave it to Moses and he set it down in the Torah. And when God demands the life of the violator, that life at that instant becomes devoted to God. It's all bound up in the same principle that when a sheep or a bull is set apart as a sacrifice, that land, the life of that animal instantly becomes devoted to God. When in the administration of justice, the person who has allegedly violated God's law is found guilty, it's the judge's duty to confer the death penalty or, or, or whatever the penalty is, that God has commanded in the Torah upon that guilty party. The judge has no right to do anything else. He can't interject his personal feelings, his personal sense of morality. Not to do so now makes the judge the guilty party of not obeying God. So it is not man who says, you must die for committing a murder. It's God. Man is simply being obedient according to God's laws when we execute a murderer. Now, a person who is to be killed for violating God's law is, in God's eyes, being set apart for him in the sense that God now is taking back that life that he'd given that person. All life is the Lord's. This is why we have this Hebrew thought that a man who commits a capital crime and thus receives the death penalty is atoning for his own guilt by means of his own blood. Under most crimes against God, non-capital crimes, an animal substitute can be offered. That guilty man's sins are then transferred to the animal and in turn God accepts, God accepts the life of that animal in place of the life of that guilty man. Therefore, in a way, that condemned man becomes God's holy property. Just as a sacrificial animal becomes God's holy property. The principle being that whatever is set apart for God, whether it's the result of something positive or horribly negative, is God's. And whatever is God's is his holy property and you don't mess with God's holy property. And the last rule discussed as a method of of offering or setting apart for God is the tithe. And this verse speaks of two kinds of tithes. A tenth of the crops from the land and a tenth of the increase of the animals. Now understand, all of these different kinds of giving applied to an Israelite's life simultaneously. 
He didn't choose from a menu. Right? Or a list of options. I like that one. They each applied according to a circumstance. Okay? So here, a tithe is just an automatic giving of a tenth of your increase, in whatever form that increase might be, in addition to all the other types of giving and devotions of things to God that we've discussed in this chapter. And since tithes were at first, in the earliest days, usually given in the form of animals or produce, but then later coins, then a person could redeem his tithed animals or produce by paying the equivalent in money plus a 20% surcharge. And what's also being described is the tithe is to be a random sampling of this person's crops and flocks and herds. In other words, for his tithe, he's not obligated to pick out the best portion nor is he permitted to pick out the worst. Okay. The tithe is just to be an honest representation of all that person's increase, the good along with the bad. Okay. This is entirely different than a first fruits offering or a ritual sacrifice where only the best can be offered. Further, as I stated, the tithe is in addition to the first fruits offerings and all the other kinds of giving that are laid out. Now let me conclude by pointing out that for the most part, chapter 27 revolved around vows and commitments that somebody had made to Jehovah. In general, God is not seeking our vows. I think this is such an important thing for Christians to grasp. But when he is, our response is to be taken very seriously. Changing one's mind is a very costly deal. Vows are not to be taken lightly. Naturally, that same exact principle was carried over to the New Testament. And just as naturally, the New Testament didn't re-explain how a vow worked. It was already written down how a vow worked. Rather, Yeshua took the meaning of it to a whole nother level. For instance, he says, it's better than swearing a vow, which involves all the stuff we've been talking about, to merely let your yes be yes, let your no be no. Yeshua is pointing out what we certainly see. There is a really major downside to making a vow to God. Right, particularly if you're not very good at following through. Well, this ends the book of Leviticus, the book of the priests of Israel. Next time, we're going to begin what is the truly awesome, awesome book of Numbers. You're going to really enjoy that study.